Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc. Or you can join us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m. Well, today we're kicking off a new series, a new series. As we do that, I thought it'd kind of be a little fun, all right, a little interactive, wake you guys up and uh, play a little true or false, okay? A little true or false. So here's how this is going to work. I got full confidence that you can handle this, okay? Even on an off day for some of our students, you're not in school, all right? Some of you thinking about the Super Bowl, we're going to do it like this, okay? We're going to just, just true, all right? And then false. You got that? All right, I'm feeling really good about your participation in this. So I'm going to throw some, some statements at you, find out what you really believe, what you may not believe. All right, so how about, how about this? Uh, here's the statement, cracking your knuckles will give you arthritis, okay? Remember grandma said like, don't crack your knuckles, give you arthritis, okay? How many of you are going like, that's true, definitely true. How many of you vote true on that? No, like you raise your hands if you vote true on that. Some of you, okay, this is the moment. All right, how many of you are going like, that's false, don't really believe that, don't think that's true? Awesome, man, it, that actually is false. Some of, like you're Googling right now. Don't do that, okay? You're going to ruin the game, all right? Um, that is false, okay? So you can crack your knuckles all you want, not during the message today, but you're going to be okay. You won't get uh, arthritis as a result of that. How about this one? Um, all ducks quack. That all ducks quack, okay? If you're going like, yeah, pretty sure most of them do some kind of version of a quack. All, right, all of my true people, raise your hand right there. Good, confidently, just confidently up, okay? Good, true, okay. And then how many of you are like, mm, I don't know, I'm not believing you, false. Okay, about a 50-50 split there. Actually, that statement is false, okay? All ducks do not quack. You can look it up, okay? You can, all right, and here's what I found as I looked it up, all right? What I found as I looked it up is there's one particular version of duck that quacks the most and really quacks a lot, that's the female duck. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not going to touch it, fellas, and I'm going to suggest that you don't either, okay? Let's just leave that there, all right? That statement's false. How about this one? Uh, it takes seven years for your body to digest a piece of gum, right? Like we all swallowed that piece of gum in class. Teacher's like, don't do that. It's going to be in your stomach till you're a senior, okay? How many of you, okay, like it's seven years to digest a piece of gum? True. Everybody voting true on that? Awesome. We got some people. Get up with me. Come on now. All right. All right, and how many of you are going false? How many of you believe in false? Okay, many of you false. It, it is false. You guys are really good at this game, okay? Uh, that is false. How about this? Zebras have stripes for camouflage, like zebras have stripes, helps camouflage them, all right, so that they can stay away from predators. Okay, how many of you are going true on that? Like that's part of the reason God gave them stripes. Awesome. How many of you are going false on that? Not the reason that they have stripes, okay? False wins again, all right? They, they have dark bodies with white stripes, but as I read this week, the white stripes actually confuse and protect them from insects, okay? I don't fully get it all. It's just what it said, okay? And so that statement, false. How about this? Um, hot water will turn into ice faster than cold water water. Hot water will turn into ice faster than cold water. How many vote true on that? Okay. How many voting true, true? How many of you voting false? False. They go, no, no way. Guess what? That one's true. I got all of you. I got it. Because some of you, you've been going false, 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 false. I saved that one for you. No, it's, it's true that hot water will turn into ice faster than cold water. I got two more for you. A goldfish only grows to the size of its bowl, right? Like whatever kind of tank you put it in, that's going to sort of play determination on it. So goldfish only grows to the size of its bowl. True. All my true people, all right, all my false people. Anybody going false? Awesome. Like two or three false. 
You win, faults. You win. All right, that is not true, okay? It plays a little bit into it, but ultimately it's the quality of the water, as I read, okay? Not a marine biologist. I just Google it, all right? And so the quality of the water, you grow that, you, you leave it outside the tank, all right, that bad boy grew up to 20 or 30 pounds, okay? And then you have to catch it with a rod and reel. All right, last one, last one. Going into the cold with wet hair, with wet hair will give you a cold. It ultimately can make you sick, right? That's what mama said. Don't do that, okay? Don't leave the house with wet hair, especially in the winter. How many of you going true on that? Like, don't do that. I know that to be true. Okay, how many of you are going, mm, don't think so, false, awesome, and you guys cheated on my game is what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> that statement is also false. It is, all right? You can go outside with wet hair. It's going to make you cold, but that doesn't mean it's going to make you sick, all right? And, and here's what we see in just a few minutes of fun together is this. We believe a lot of stuff, don't we? Right? We've bought into a lot of different things, sometimes things that aren't even really true, and so today we're kicking off a new series um, just simply called Stop Believing That. Uh, and here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks together. We're going to talk about some things that we have begun to believe that ultimately are not really true. So in our time together, we're going to take the lies and we're kind of going to debunk them all right, with the truth. We're going to hopefully stop believing the lies and begin to believe the truth. Now, I want to start today's time with um, this statement. In the world that we live in today, there are clearly some points of no return. There are some points of no return. For instance, if someone commits a crime, all right, to the certain degree, they go to jail. They could, they could even forfeit their own life for that decision that they make. For some decisions in our culture, there is justice and only consequences, like, that's it. There's no other way around it. There's no return, no second chance. But here's my question. Is it the same way with God? Is it the same way with God? Can you become so sinful, so messed up, that God could never really love and forgive you? Now, many people would believe that, and that's the thought that I want us to tackle in our time today, that I believe that, man, I'm too far gone, too messed up, too broken. My life's too dark. I've walked through too many seasons for God to ever really fully love me. See, there's a really good chance that in a room of this many people, maybe even some of you joining us online today, um, man, that you've made some decisions in your life, maybe in years past, maybe in months past, maybe yesterday, or you've walked through seasons of your life where you've lived a certain way and you look back at that and maybe you're really not proud of it, but you're going, there's certainly no way that like this holy perfect God that people sing about could love and forgive some of that deep, dark brokenness of my life. Perhaps maybe you gave up your purity way too early in life. Or maybe for you, uh, you found yourself in the middle of an affair or maybe it was the crime that you committed that you never thought you would do, and then you did time because of that. Or maybe um, you are living with a multi-year secret sin that nobody even really knows about, not even your spouse or your parents. Or maybe for you, it's, it's that addiction that controls your thoughts and it controls your actions. I mean, it just, it's constantly there over and over and over. Maybe you've experienced the reality of an abortion or you've walked through the pain of a divorce. Or, man, the list could go on and on and on and on and on of things that our world that maybe we choose or we become a victim to or that we experience. And when we walk through those things, we can so quickly begin to believe that, man, there's no way that God would ever really love me after that. 
There's no way I could get like the full forgiveness because of what I have done. And when that happens, the lie begins to creep in so often where we begin to tell ourselves, man, God doesn't really love people like me. Like church, that's not me, okay? There's nobody around me, especially my family, no one's messed up to the level that I've messed up. Like, I'm, I've been called the black sheep, right? I'm, I'm damaged goods. There's no way God would fully love me. God's given me, he's, I mean, he's given me so many chances, and I've, I've seemingly blown all of them. And here we are again. So there's no way that God could ever love me as messed up as I am. And it's so easy to begin to believe that. You see, in my role as a pastor, I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, hear a lot of people's stories, and a lot of people open up. And I've heard that statement so many different times where people lay that out to say, man, you don't know my story. Like, you would never believe what I have this. And as a result, there's no way that God could ever fully love me. And sometimes we hear that voice, we hear that statement from others, but often we hear it from ourselves, don't we? That, man, I'm, I am too disqualified to ever really belong and be saved by holy God. Now, here's the truth and the good news today is that you are not too far gone to be saved. You're not. Man, as long as there is breath in your lungs, you can be saved. Scripture says, man, the only point of no return is death. That regardless of what your guilty conscience may say, regardless of the weight of that guilt and shame in your life, maybe even in this moment, that a holy and perfect God still loves you and he longs to offer you forgiveness and salvation for your life. So today, here's what I want us to do in the rest of our time. We're going to look at some verses of scripture and then I want us to look at two different truths that prove that to be true. And we prove the lie to be a lie that you are not too far gone to be saved. So if you have a copy of Scripture, whether that's a hard copy or digital copy, you can open up to James 2. Um, we're, now, we're going to be in multiple passages of Scripture. So if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you or you just want to take notes, we'll put verses on the screen behind me so that you can follow along um, with where we're going to be. But James 2 is where we'll start in just a moment. Now, here's our two truths for today, okay? The first one is this. first one that proves that you're not too far gone for God to save is this, that God doesn't grade on a curve, God doesn't grade your life and mine on a curve. How many of you, all right, let's take all my uh, adults, all right, back to junior high and high school days, okay, throwback Sunday, all right, to back when you have to take tests like every week, okay, wasn't that just a joyous occasion? Uh, for all my students in the room, I don't have to take you back anywhere. Like, that's Monday for you, okay? It's, like, it's coming tomorrow. If you have a test tomorrow, probably skip the Super Bowl, just study, okay? Parents, make sure uh, that happens. No, seriously, we all remember that day when we had to take a test. Right, and, and I remember there were moments where I finished my test. All right, this is back when like you wrote the test, like it was a paper, okay? And, and I went, I turned it in, and there were moments where I was like, boss, like I, I just crushed that. Like I, there's a hundred, you don't even need to grade it. And there were moments where I went and turned the test in, like with a knot in my stomach. You've been there before? Where it's like, oh my goodness, I hope my mama doesn't find out, right? I bomb that joker. Now, there were moments where there would be like two days later where the teacher finally finished putting all the red marks on the paper and she'd stand before the class and she would say what? She would say, well, I finished grading the, the test and here's the reality. Man, nobody did good on this thing. All right? And all of a sudden, I just felt relief. Like I'm, I'm not alone over here. I'm not the dumb kid. Like everybody's dumb. And so she would make this announcement. She would make the announcement, hey, guess what? I'm going to grade this test on a curve. And it was like, whoo! 
okay. Like that was the moment. And what it meant was that she was going to take everybody's test grade and add points to it to give us a higher grade than what we actually deserved. And it was a glorious occasion, right? When the teacher chose to grade on a curve. Now, here's the reality. God doesn't grade our life on a curve. Here's what I mean. We as people have this way of categorizing sin. We, we begin to see sin on different levels. Do we not? Like we've got, let's, let's talk in normal terms. Like we, we, there's like the little sins, okay? And then there's, then there's the big sins. Then we've got bigger sins. And then there, oh, then there's the really, 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 really bad sins, okay? And you don't want to go there, all right, with the really bad sins. In fact, like I kind of brought a chart so that we can kind of sort of see how we view sin, right? It kind of looks like that. Like we got the least sins, the, the simple things, the little things down at the bottom, and then there's like, ooh, there's the worst, the really, 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 really bad towards the top. You don't want to go there. And so like, let's, I thought it would be good for us to chart some sins, okay, just to kind of do that together, a little crowd participation. All right, and so the first one we'll, we'll chart is gluttony. All right, gluttony, all right, some of you, like that's, that's a real thing, overeating, okay, where you can't show self-control in that. And so whether that's like smashing the Ichiban buffet for you or that's the biscuits and Cracker Barrel, I don't know what your jam is, okay? And here's the thing, all right, when that 21 days of fasting ends at lunchtime today, okay, don't go smash it to the point of gluttony because then you got to repent right after you just fasted, okay? I'm just saying, self-control, self-control, all right? But seriously, okay, we, we would look at gluttony. We'd be like, oh, man, like, I think almost everybody does that at some point. So, like, that's, that's probably not that bad of a sin. So we'll, we'll kind of put that down here towards the bottom. But what about, what if we went with this one? What about lying? We'll add lying onto the list. Let's say that you lie to your parents as a student. You lie to your boss about why you're late for work or after the curfew. Now, you made it, okay? You made it. Nobody was hurt. But, like, you, you fibbed the reason that you were late, Right? That would be a sin, that would be a lie, and it's probably a little worse than like smashing Ichiban, but at the same time, like it's not, like there's a lot of things way worse than that. Can we just be real about that? Okay, so let's do another one. How about stealing? Stealing, okay, let's say maybe you take money or you take possessions from a friend or maybe it's your company. We're like, mm, yeah, that, okay, we're getting a little hairy now, all right? That, you don't do that. Like, that's definitely worse than lying, okay? Way worse than gluttony, all right? Cracker Barrel Biscuits are so far in the past because you took money, okay? It wasn't yours. You're stealing. Now, let's go further, okay? We can put adultery on there, all right? Unfortunately, happens more times than it should in our culture today, but we still are aware enough to go like, yeah, that's not, that's not a good one, okay? That, that's bad. We're getting worse and worse, way worse, all right, than gluttony, definitely worse than lying or stealing, and we could throw this one on there. How about murder? And I think a lot of us would just go, mm-hmm, like the climax right there. Like, you, you, you took someone's life. Like that, that is, that is, I don't know many things that could be worse than that. And you see what happens is, is we begin to kind of categorize and rank these different sins. And as people, here's what we believe. We believe the person who's committed the really bad sins, like the ones at the top of the chart, they're definitely worse than the people who've really just done sort of the little things at the bottom of the chart. And because we believe that, we believe this. We believe that God will treat us according to the level of the sin that we have committed. I mean, that kind of logically makes sense, doesn't it? We believe God reacts to how we have sinned, the level of our sin. But the truth is today, that's just not biblical. It's not biblical. See, here's what James 2 says. If you're open to it, you can look at verse 10. It's on the screen as well. James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point 
is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Scripture says there are no divisions of sin. That God doesn't grade on a curve. That the guy who lies is the same as the guy who murders. That the woman who gossips is the same as the woman who sleeps with a man who's not her husband. And what we begin to see is that all sin is the same in God's eyes, which means that God sees sin so differently than we do sometimes. Right? Remember, this is how we see sin. But yet, this is how God sees sin. He defines it all the same. S-I-N. God doesn't grade your life or mine on a curve. It's all the same. It's sin. And if God doesn't grade on a curve and all sin is the same, it leaves us with this result. That all of us are in need of his grace and forgiveness. All of us. In fact, Paul would write this very simply in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says this. He says, for all have sinned. That's you. That's me. We all fall short of the glory, or we could say the standard of God. That all in the original Greek means everybody. All of us. It means the pastor and the prisoner. It means the addict and the church kid. Everybody, everyone's sin is the same and because God doesn't see people. He doesn't see people as murderers, and then there's the liars, and then there's the thieves, and then there's the terrorists. He says, no, they're sinners. And we can never lose sight of that reality. And the proof today that you're not too far gone is that, man, God doesn't grade on a curve. And here's the good news in that. Because God doesn't grade on a curve, your sin isn't any worse than the person who's sitting to the right and to the left of you today. God doesn't grade on a curve, but there's... There's another truth that I want us to grab, and it's this, that God treats the disease of sin and not its symptoms. God treats the disease of sin and not its symptoms. How many of you ever had the, uh, the joy of having a sinus infection before? Okay, I'll just testify in church today. That's awesome. Okay, I think if you, if you move to Mississippi, like, it's just part of the benefits plan. Like, it's it just like you, it, you get like two to three to six a year. Okay, they're just coming your way. And, and does, not, like, does not a sinus infection take on so many different forms? Does it not? Like day one, like you got like a little trickle right here. Okay, it's just like nose running a little bit. By the end of the day, like you, it's just like a fountain. Okay, it's just like I didn't even know I could have that much in me. You got Kleenexes in every pocket that you can find. You can't remember which ones are used and which one. Okay, that's kind of gross. All right, but like that's what happens, right? And then day two, what happens? It stuffs all up. You got a headache so bad, you can't even see straight. Day three, it's not the headaches, not the runny nose anymore. You're like, you got a little mild fever. And you're like, hey, can't go to work, can't go to school today. And then by day four, the fever's gone. And what happened? Like your throat hurts and you're coughing and you know everybody around you. Is that not how it goes down, okay? All right, maybe you have the holy sinus infections or you just get one of them. But like, that's how it plays out. Now you go to the doctor, what does the doctor say? Doctor says, you got a sinus infection. What did you experience? You experienced all of the different symptoms. You see, it's in the same way that sin manifests itself in our lives, in us as, as fallen people, in so many different ways. But the issue is it's all the same. It's all sin. Now, as we said a second ago, as people, right, we have a, have a way that we categorize sins. In the same way, we also have a, have a tendency in our flesh to categorize sinners. 
Let's play it this way. If I should throw out the names like uh, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, right? Sitting inside of an, uh, of an American culture, they were like, whoa, those are some terrible people. Like they were horrible. Took human life. They were destructive to humanity. Clearly some of the worst people who have ever lived. Then if I was to throw out names like Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr., we'd be like, wow, like those are, those are some amazing people. Like they did so much good for humanity. We, some of you might move to the point, maybe you've said it before, like those, those are saints. But you know what group one and group two have in common? The same disease, sin. Paul would say this in Romans 3, verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no one right before me, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who fully seeks God. Scripture says all sins and all sinners are same in the eyes of God. And just because a sin doesn't make headlines doesn't mean it isn't serious. Sin is born in us through this sin-filled, selfish, broken heart that we all have. And in in Psalm 51, David, man, if you know his story, David writes some incredibly like honest, authentic words to God, and we have a chance to read them. Here's what David says, Psalm 51, verse 3. David owns this. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin, it is always before me. And then he's talking to God. He says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. So you're right, God. Like You're right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge me. And then he acknowledges in verse five, he says, surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the very time my mother conceived me. Don't miss this incredibly important truth from Psalm 51. Okay, David's confession reveals that he was not guilty for what he had done, but he was guilty because of who he was. He was not guilty for for what he'd done. He was guilty for just who he was. You see, David had committed the top-level sins. He was one of the worst. Like he'd murder, okay, conspiracy, lying, adultery. David checked all those boxes. But in this moment, David wasn't dwelling on the symptoms that had played out in his life, but he was, he was dwelling on the identity that he was a sinner. And that was the core problem that he had. In fact, he says, I was born guilty, right? He says, surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In other words, we come into this world as a sinner. Now, listen. I would not recommend this week that you walk up to newborn parents and go, look at that cute little sinner right there. Look at that, okay? Just saying that might not go real well, but here's what I'm saying. No matter how cute you were or weren't as a baby, underneath all that little baby cuteness was a sinful and broken core. David says it was all of us, that we were sinful at our core. And guess what? That sinful heart that you were born with is what we're plagued with. And it's what you battle all the way until today, until the final breath that you will take on this earth. But here's the good news today. God, just like a good doctor, doesn't treat just the symptoms. But he treats 
the sin. He treats the sin, and more than God sees the sins, he sees the heart of the sinner, and he knows that we, that we are all so in need of grace, and that's why he sent Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus' primary mission in coming into this life wasn't to make your life and mine more prosperous. It wasn't to make your life and mine more, to make it easier or to make us more successful, or to make us more inspirational. No, Jesus says, my mission in coming to earth was to save sinners. That's why he came. And so here's the good news today, that God treats the disease of sin and not just the symptoms in how it plays out, which means this for you. No matter what symptoms your life has expressed, no matter how dark, how broken, how messed up they may be, God can still heal the sinner. God can still heal the sinner. Now, our final few minutes, I want you to turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, just earlier in the beginning of the New Testament. John 8, we see, um, man, one of the most powerful pictures of Jesus um, and love and his compassion and his forgiveness. It's a story some of you will know, but I want to I kind of read it together again and just pull out a couple of quick truths. John chapter 8, verse 1 says this. It says, Jesus, he went um, up to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him. So he sits down to teach him. The crowd's there. Jesus is teaching. And verse 3, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, in other words, the religious officials, they bring in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, hey, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So here's this picture. Jesus is teaching. Crowds gathered around. And the religious officials walk in with a woman caught in the act of adultery. And she stands before the crowd, and they look at Jesus, and they go, what do you say, master teacher? Now, a lot of scholars have asked questions about where's the guy in this situation? Takes two to commit adultery. Where's he? Some people say perhaps he escaped. Other people say perhaps he was standing with the Pharisees, ridiculing this woman. But regardless, this woman is exposed. She is guilty. And she has moments from death because you see in this day in the law of Moses, if you were convicted and found in adultery, it meant your execution. It meant that you would die. And the religious leaders bring the lady in and then they question Jesus by saying, hey, Jesus, remember, this is what the law says, but what do you say? And let's be real, in this moment, like Jesus, he had two options. In this moment, he could have agreed with the mob condoned her execution, and his message of grace and forgiveness that he'd been preaching would have totally been shattered, right? I mean, he, he would be endorsing the very religious tactics that he seemed to try to resist. However, on the other hand, if Jesus was like, no, just forget it, and he pardoned her, he wouldn't be keeping the law that he claimed to love and support. I mean, like, the religious officials are going, this is it. Like, this is the day we've been waiting on. This is the ultimate trap for Jesus. This is the moment where he will fail. Like, he, he can't get out. And in John 8, it tells us Jesus' response. He does the most peculiar thing. He kneels down, and he begins to write in the dirt. And as he does, all of the religious officials pull their attention away from Jesus 
and they put him, or excuse me, away from the adulterous woman, and they put him on Jesus. And as he begins to doodle, the crowds watch, and we don't know exactly what he wrote, but we know that the crowds begin to grow restless, and they begin to shout at him, what do you say? Come on now, give us an answer. And as Jesus knelt down, he was in one of his most public, tested, controversial moments. And he apparently felt the compassion for this woman who was exposed. She was guilty. She was due the punishment that was to come. And she stood there knowing. She knew, like, this is the end. Like, my death is inevitable. Like, that's what's coming next. This is my final day. And if there was ever a moment, church, where Jesus could have justified casting off a sinner, this was it. Like, she was guilty. She got caught red-handed. She'd violated the law. She was due the punishment. All of it pointed to guilty, but Jesus in this moment refused to cast her off. And Scripture says he didn't even condemn her. Instead, he knelt down, and he pulled away the attention off of her, and he put it onto him as he began to show the depth of his compassion for sinners. And here's how the story ends. John 8, verse 8 says, again, he stooped down. He wrote on the ground. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but we know they begin to drop their stones. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus stood up. He looked her in the eyes and he asked, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Now go, go now, and leave your life of sin. This lady was moments from her death because of her sin. She was clearly guilty as charged. She was clearly deserving of the punishment that was coming, death. But then Jesus stepped in, and he not only saved her physical life, but he forgave her sins. And he reached into the teeth of death and he pulled her out and offered her freedom and a second chance. That church is the gospel. That's the gospel for you and for me, that we were guilty as charged. We were caught in the act. No way around it, it was us. We were guilty, we were deserving of the punishment that was due us for what we had done, which was sin. But then this happened. Ephesians chapter two, I wanna read it to you from the message translation. It says this, it says, it wasn't so long ago This is your story. It's mine. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which really doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You ever been there before? You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then we just exhaled disobedience. Man, we've all been there. Like, it was just who we were. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. Is that not the picture of our culture? What we want to do, when we want to do it. It's a wonder. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with all of us. That's what we should have had. Instead... Instead, some versions say, but immense in mercy, with an incredible love, he embraced us. And he took on 
your and my sin-dead life, and he made us alive in Christ and did it all on his own with no help from us. And then in Christ, he picked us up and he set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. That, that is the power and the love and the forgiveness of a God who says, you are not too far gone for me to save. And church, if Jesus can love and save and redeem an adulterous woman in John 8, he can love and save and redeem you too. Because you see, Jesus is a Savior who doesn't run away from sinners, but he runs after them. He runs after them. And so I wonder today, what is the weight of sin that maybe you're living under today? Like what is the guilt and regret in, in your life from decisions that you made in your past or maybe things you're living in in your present that are keeping you from experiencing the love and the grace and the forgiveness of a very real and very merciful God. You see, God sent Jesus for sinners, which means all of us. And here's what I want you to hear today. You're not too far gone for God to save. John 8 shows us that today, that if God can forgive this adulterous woman, you're not too far gone either. But don't miss this. There is one sin. There is one that God cannot forgive. There's one. He, and he, he just simply, he cannot forgive it. And that is the sin of rejecting him. He can't overcome that one. The sin of you refusing to obey and refusing to follow him. Everything else, his grace covers. And today, maybe you've been living. You've been living believing that, man, you, you've messed up too much, too many times, too bad for God to love and save you. And God would say today, stop believing that. Stop believing the lie and begin to believe the truth that a holy and a perfect and a loving and merciful God wants you to know him personally. Let's pray together this morning. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about the exchange or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.